Our gospel lesson this morning is found in John chapter 20. We are reading verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, on the first day of the week, we come and we assemble in your presence, and we come eager to be addressed by you. Will you speak today through your word to us? We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. If you have a Bible available, you can turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. We are developing ideas on the fourth commandment today, which is the commandment concerning the Sabbath, the holy day set apart by God for our benefit. Verses 12 through 15. Now, as we have done in the rest of the sermons in this series, you're going to be flipping all over the place today, okay? We'll be developing uh, the Sabbath commandment from all that Scripture says about the Sabbath. So have your Bible ready if you have one for you. The uh, projector people upstairs will not be able to keep up, so you can't rely on them today. There's just too much. Several years ago, I was speaking with a friend who is a psychologist, and we were talking about human beings and their ambivalence towards boundaries, and yet simultaneously their craving for boundaries. That we don't particularly like rules and commands, they constrict us, but yet we also crave them at the same time, and that we live in a bit of a schizophrenic situation. That we want rules and boundaries, they make us feel safe, but yet we tend to push back against them as well. And rules and boundaries, though, they allow us, my friend was sharing with me, they allow us to realize our potential. They actually bring us into a sphere of freedom. And he shared a story with me about young children. It was actually a study done by a psychologist on young children at a playground. And so a group of children were taken to a playground that was set in the middle of a field. It was a wide expanse. It was a beautiful field. It was inviting to play in. And then another group of children were taken to a playground that was fenced in. The equipment was confined inside of a fence. And observations were made by the psychologist about the behavior of the children on the two sets of playground equipment. And what was noted was that the children who were inside of the fence used the entire area inside the fence. That they had the maximum amount of freedom that was allowable and they used every bit of it. But that the children who played on the equipment in the middle of the field, they actually stayed huddled around the equipment. They didn't feel safe. There was no boundary to guard and protect them, and so they huddled and stayed close. 
And there's something very important for us to understand about our humanity in that study, because this is what we long for. We long for boundaries that give us safety and protection, and they actually allow for greater freedom. Paul Lehman, in his study on ethics, suggests that what God is doing in the world is that he is making and keeping human life human. And so when we arrive at the law of God, we don't come to some arbitrary commands that are just mean and nasty from a God who's just waiting to squash you. As much as some people may think of the law in that way, it's just simply not true. That what God is doing is he's revealing his will to us in his law. And it is about making and keeping human life human. That it is a good guide about what it means to flourish and how we can serve God. And how we can go with the grain of the universe that God has created. And what that looks like. And so the Sabbath commandment that we observe one day, that this is not a commandment to make you dour. It's not a commandment to take away one of your, your weekend days. That it's a commandment to lead you into freedom, into prosperity, into flourishing as a human being as God has intended. See, the Sabbath is a command, but ultimately it's a gift. It's a gift to you from God. A gift to keep you human. So the main question for us this morning is what does it mean for us to keep time with God? What does that look like? Obviously the Bible in Genesis 1 leading into chapter 2 has God creating in six days and on the seventh he rests. He takes up his reign over his finished product. He comes to dwell inside of it. He rests on that day. And that in Exodus 20 where the Ten Commandments are revealed... The pattern of our behaviors are to follow that creational rest of God. And so what does it mean for us to keep time with Him, to follow His rhythms, the rhythms of creation, the rhythms of God Himself? The first piece of this is very simple. We cease our work. I don't mean to patronize you in saying that, but very clearly there is a negative part of the commandment and that we are to cease and desist from certain activities on the Sabbath day. The word Sabbath itself actually means cease or desist. And so Sabbath day could be the ceasing day, the desisting day. Verse 13 in chapter 5. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And so the Sabbath day is a day in which we cease from our normal occupations. Those things that we give ourselves to for six days, God now prohibits us from doing those. He asks us to lay them aside, to put them down, that this day is holy to Him and to us. And the word holy in the Old Testament simply means set apart, something that has been consecrated, something that has been set aside. And that we, if something is holy, we no longer can relate to that thing as if it is ours, because it belongs to God. We find in the New Testament that Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection, 
what the Apostle John calls the first day of the week. Perhaps you heard that in verse 1 of chapter 20. He emphasizes that Jesus was found to be resurrected on the first day of the week. And then John later in writing his Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, in chapter 1 verse 10 says that this is the Lord's day. That now Christian worship has been transformed from the seventh day, the final day of creation, that now it is the first day of creation. It is the first day of new creation. And it is appropriate for Christians to see the Sabbath commandment being fulfilled now in that day. That we cease from our work. That we set apart the Lord's day. That we sanctify that and receive it as a gift from God. But why is it that we struggle to cease from working? If it is a gift... Something God tells us to do because it's for our good. Why is it so hard? Why is it hard for us to put down the works of our hands, our vocations that we give ourselves to six days? When God tells us it's good, why do we struggle so much with that? In the book of Nehemiah, we find at least part of the answer. If you turn to chapter 13 in Nehemiah, this is just before Job in your, uh, in your Old Testament and Esther. Nehemiah 13, verses 15 through 17. Nehemiah has returned from exile with the Jewish people, and he's restoring Jerusalem and rebuilding it. He's reforming things. He says, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? And what's clear is that the vocations, the callings that God had placed upon His people, the commercial activity, the agricultural activity of pressing grapes into wine, all those things were sanctioned on the six days of the week. But here on the seventh day, the people were still engaging in that activity. And Nehemiah says to them, you must stop. This isn't obedient to the Lord. You're supposed to cease and desist from your commercial activities. Those things that are set apart for you on those six days are not set apart for you on this day. And what is going on, though, when we engage that work on the Sabbath? I think the fundamental motive in the heart is that it is a failure to trust God that we can rest from our work, and that what we've done will be enough. This is what is actually so hard for us, that we feel like our work is not complete, that we have to continue because our work is simply going to pile up, and that it's never done, and if we don't do it, somehow things are going to fall apart or fail, and that resting and being idle on that day is going to disserve us. And the thing that we have to get our minds around as God's people, as people who've been bought and saved by Him, is that our work is never done self-sufficiently anyway. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that we sow and plant. But who is it that gives the growth? It is God. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers build in vain. And I think our fundamental struggle with the Sabbath is that we don't work in the way that God wants us to work. That we think our work is self-sufficient. That we think it's autonomous. That we think we're the ones who are completely responsible for the results. And so we'll give ourselves to being industrious and hardworking. And we will overwork. And we'll work seven days. We'll violate all of God's commandments because we think the whole enterprise depends on us. But the truth is, is that our work, no matter how efficient or talented we are, the results are always in God's hands. He is the only one who can make it fruitful. He's the only one who can cause it to grow. And so when He commands us to cease from it for one day, He's asking us to trust Him. He's asking us to submit ourselves to Him, to hang ourselves with Him in faith that He can work that he will use the works of our hands as we give it over to him. And so it is an act of faith to cease from work, to turn our time into God's hands, to cease and desist. But this leaves us with the question, what exactly are we to do? What is the positive side of it? Are we simply to be idle? Does that mean that we're just to sit at home on the Sabbath day Ceasing and desisting from the normal things that we do. No. The thing is, is that God calls us not to do certain kinds of work on the Sabbath, but He does call us to engage another kind of work. And that is that we cease our work in order to celebrate, specifically giving thanks for our redemption in Christ. In verse 12 of chapter 5 in Deuteronomy, you see that it begins with, Observe the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. In other words, it doesn't begin in the negative, it begins in the positive. And when we are commanded to observe, we are being instructed to engage certain practices, certain ceremonies that bring honor to God and also engage us in His presence. When you develop out and fill out all that the Old Testament says about the Sabbath day, you find that the commands to the Sabbath are tightly tied with the worship of God's people. You can look, for example, in Leviticus 23. Back to the left in your Bible. And in Leviticus 23, you have an entire chapter devoted to the Sabbath. And the chapter begins in verse 3, stating the Sabbath commandment again, that six days you are to work, one day you are to rest. And then the remainder of the chapter builds out, telescoping the Sabbath command and all of its implications, and that there were festivals that Israel was to observe and keep as part of the Sabbath commandment. And they were to return to Jerusalem a certain number of times to celebrate the Day of Atonement, building out their calendar and year around the great events of God's redemption of His people. And so there was to be this holy convocation celebrating, gathering for the worship of God. And this is why we cease our work. We cease in order to celebrate, to engage another kind of work that God has set us apart for, that God has declared that we are His holy people, a special possession for Him, and that we're to set aside this day to remember that, 
to allow that to be absorbed into the marrow of our being, all that God has done for us. And so if you turn back to Deuteronomy 5, we find explicitly the motivation, though, for what is to propel our celebration forward. If you follow in verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And this is where the logic of the Sabbath, of why we are to keep it, it is clear once again that this is not about doing something on a particular day to earn your way into God's favor. That is not the way the law works. The law begins with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God has saved and delivered just like he has saved and delivered us in Jesus. And that the logic of the Sabbath commandment is because God has saved us. We set apart this one day to remember, to reflect, to observe, to give thanks for all that God has done for us in our salvation. That this is what's being pressed on us. And that it is because of the graciousness of God in His freedom, setting us apart for Himself, saving us through Jesus, that He has sent Him into the world to identify with us in our sins, to die the death that we deserve, to be raised to new life, and that in Him we are set free, set free in front of God, free from our sins, free from a broken past, free for the future, free for God's new world. And that is what the Sabbath is set apart for. It is to bathe ourselves, to immerse ourselves in all of those good promises, remembering them, knowing that they're certain and they're true. And this is why in worship we do certain things repetitiously. Why do we say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed? It is to remember. It's to remember what God has done to affect our salvation. That our Lord Jesus came into the world born of a virgin. That he suffered, that he died, that he rose, that he ascended, that he has sent his spirit. Then he gathers us together in the church. We need to constantly be reminded. Have those things set in front of us. And that is why it's good for us to gather. Why it's good to be together. Celebrating and remembering. Working those things down to the depth of our being. And so many people will naturally ask, well, what else should we do on the Sabbath? It is very difficult to define with great precision what pleases God and what doesn't please God on the Sabbath. Our theological forebears have spent a lot of hours and a lot of ink on the topic. Okay? There were squabbles and arguments about whether you could bowl or not. I've never really wanted to bowl on the Sabbath, but that's my own cultural upbringing, just not a bowler. So it's easy for me to just say, well, that's not a problem. <laughs> but that misses the point. The deeper conversation is, what is it that brings rest? What is it that pleases God? The most important thing to begin with, though, is that our rest begins in worship. That is what we know. That is what Scripture makes explicitly clear, that that's not a negotiable that rest is not simply up for you to define what it means for you to rest. That rest begins in gathering with God's people for worship. 
And then that there are other permissible activities, things that would bring us into a further rest in which we can celebrate and give thanks to God. Some examples of types of things that we see commended in the Bible or fellowship. Being together with God's people, sharing time together on the Sabbath day, encouraging one another, laughing, having fun, sharing a meal, going to a community group, or just doing it in a more casual format. It doesn't really matter, but it's good Sabbath activity, sharing time together with fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. We find Jesus also in the gospel serving people. One of the things that got him killed by the Pharisees was his persistence in healing on the Sabbath. And so he met those who were in distress and need, and he served them. That this too is part of good Sabbath activity, is showing care and concern for others. And then there can be other forms of rest. There is a sacrosanct part of my week, and it's five o'clock on Sunday. Five o'clock on Sunday, I love nothing more than to go on a run. (laughs) Because what it does is it gives me the opportunity to engage with God in solitude. It is one of the times in the week where I don't run with music in my ears. Because I simply try to take it all in. And with the weather turning, I'm hoping to take it in all the better. Without humidity. But taking it in, resting, meditating on all that God is for us, the beauty of creation. And this is the point, that Sabbath rest is not about escaping. Okay, It's not about escaping your life. It's not about escaping creation. But Sabbath rest is more so about engaging further with life and creation. It's meeting God in the reality of those things, and it's driving deeper into that. And in that mystery, God refuels us. God refreshes us when we come and rest in that way. So what's left is us for us to consider, though, what happens to us when we do keep this time with God. Is if, if this is what it looks like to keep time with God, is that we do cease, but we cease in order to celebrate and worship, and that there are other things permissible as well, What effect does that have on us, though? Over time, Sabbath over Sabbath, what does it end up building into us? I think there's three primary things that the Bible develops for us about what happens. And the first is that we do orient our lives to God. It sometimes is easy for us to miss that what is on our calendars oftentimes gives shape to our lives. I learned this early on as a college student, because what did I live for? First thing I lived for was winter break, the Christmas break. I couldn't wait for it to get there, okay? I learned how important it was. And then I was part of a college ministry that had a Christmas conference right after Christmas. And so our entire fall was built recruiting for the Christmas conference, And so there was a definite event, and that gave priority and order to many of the decisions that we were making during the fall, because we were recruiting students and busily working towards that. And it was that big event that oriented so much of my time. And then, what did I look forward to next? Well, there was spring break, and there were activities that were definitive during that. And then there was summer break, and there was the summer beach project, and the things that we did there, and that oriented my time. And friends, it's important for us to realize that we all have commitments in our calendars and our schedules that then offer us an orientation 
to our lives, that direct us, that govern us, that give us the cues about what we are to do. And as I was maturing and growing, I began to ask myself the question, whether the things on my calendar and schedule were actually the things that drove me to God. Were the commitments that were sacrosanct on my calendar, were those the things that actually pleased God? And that the most fundamental and basic structure that God gives to our world is one day in seven, set apart to Him. And did that priority, was that priority reflected in my commitments? Was it reflected in my calendar? Or were there other things that I was more subservient to? Was I more excited about the Saturday football games? Was I more intrigued and and dialing in my calendar around what was going to happen on the TV or in the stadium? Was I dialing my schedule more in around my kids' activities, their sporting events, their school? Was I dialing in around time with the family? Visiting family and grandparents and different things, were those the things that brought expectation and joy to my life? None of those things being bad things, but when they become primary things and they wash out the structure that God has given to us, these things can become incredibly wrong. And so what is it that brings orientation? God has given one day in seven to orient you around what's important. And that in that rhythm of life, it will impress things on you without you even recognizing it. And so this is what happens to us. The second thing that happens to us is that we learn mercy. You find in Deuteronomy 5, it's very interesting, the reason why Israel was to remember the Sabbath day, to observe it. They were to remember that they had been slaves. And then they were to be kind and merciful to everyone under their care. And it's actually a very beautiful and moving commandment towards having a just society in which people aren't taken advantage of. And we find this all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, especially in the sabbatical laws concerning the seventh year or the fiftieth year, the year of Jubilee. And that there was to be just ordering and people were not to be taken advantage of, that debts were to be forgiven. And so with the Sabbath command, as it's developed through all the Scriptures, especially when you get into the prophets, and when you arrive in Jesus finally, you find that mercy and justice, being fair and equitable, is right at the heart of the commandment. Jesus asked the Pharisees when they criticized him for healing on the Sabbath, he says, is it right to save life or to kill on the Sabbath? I'm not doing anything wrong was his defense. I'm saving life. He was showing mercy. He was showing justice. And because we have been redeemed by God through Jesus, that he's taken us out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage, On this day when we observe and remember those realities, we learn to show that same mercy to others. That's what happens. Experiencing the mercy of God, it transforms us. It changes us to be merciful people. We learn that same grace. The final thing that happens to us, though, when we keep time with God is that We anticipate the future. If you turn to the book of Hebrews, 
chapter 4. The entire chapter develops the notion of Sabbath. In verse 8, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And friends, this is speaking of a future day. There is another orientation that we're not simply looking back to what God has done for us. As great as that is in Jesus, through death and resurrection, affecting our salvation, delivering us. But we're also anticipating the future on this day. That when we gather and celebrate and worship, that we are in some way a sign and a foretaste of a future day when God returns to His broken and polluted world in order to restore it. And that the Sabbath anticipates that great day. The day when God removes all evil and pollution. When He removes my capacity to sin. When he removes your capacity to sin. When he removes the burden of being sinned against. When he removes societal injustice. When he removes racism. When he takes away greed and covetousness. When he fixes all that is broken with our world. And he raises the dead and makes it right. Creation healed and restored. Everything working in the harmony with which it was intended. On the Sabbath day... That is the dream that we enter into, looking forward to and anticipating, allowing that to motivate us, allowing it to pull us along. You see, it doesn't push you. It's more like a magnetic force pulling you along because that is the weight and gravity of it. It's massive what God has in store for you. And that Sabbath rest that still awaits the people of God is out in front of us. And so gathering on the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath, there's no burden at all. It's not a rule to somehow smash you. It's to free you. It's to bring you into the delights of all that God's done for you in Jesus, all that he is for you in Jesus. And that you meet with him and his people, and that he continue to encourage you, and that your life would be deeply shaped by him. That you learn what it is to love him and love your neighbor. That's the Sabbath commandment. That's what your God has for you. It's a gift. Receive it in faith. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge the ways that we come up short of this. We find our work and vocations and our recreation and our play to be so much more enticing than you at certain times. Forgive us for that. Forgive us for taking all your gifts lightly. Help us to use the Sabbath day in the way that you would want it for us, that we could delight in you, that we could worship you, be refreshed by you, be drawn into the future, be encouraged by you. Minister to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.